Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Breaking the gray. This is the Kinetic War podcast series, as seen by war correspondent and journalist David Wood and hosted by Paul Wood. The hope of the world is that wisdom can arrest conflict between brothers. I believe that war is a deadly harvest of arrogant and unreasoning minds. Welcome to episode six of Kinetic War, Gumshoeing the Mopes. I'm your host, Paul Wood, in conversation with my very distinguished guest and the subject of our podcast series, David Wood. Hello, David. Hey, Paul. David is a Pulitzer Prize winning war correspondent, journalist, and author. And today, our subject is incredibly relevant and appropriate because we, uh, our subject is the chaotic ending of our war in Afghanistan. And in this podcast, David will be covering how this became such a failure of kinetic warfare in Afghanistan, provide a new perspective on what we did and didn't do well, talk about what happened to the gigantic amount of money we spent in Afghanistan, and in conclusion, what we can learn from our 20 years of incredible sacrifice there. So David, how do we begin talking about the failure of kinetic warfare in our longest war in Afghanistan? Um, but before we get that, what, what's up with this title? <laughs> yeah, gumshoeing the mopes. So most of what we know about what happened or didn't happen in Afghanistan comes from the work of a guy named John Sopko. His title is the Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction. That's a job Congress invented some years ago to keep an eye on the tremendous amounts of money we were spending in Afghanistan. And actually, it's not just John Sopko, it's a sizable office with dozens of inspectors and analysts. And I call them gumshoes, which is a name for investigators. The word I think is a throwback to the 1930s with gangsters and G-men and private eyes who were called gumshoes because they wore these rubber-soled shoes to creep around stealthily. So John Sopko heads this office, and he's a former mob prosecutor in Ohio. So he speaks in terms of gangsters and the mob. And mopes, <laughs> mopes are the not-so-smart bad guys. And we'll get back to John's work later in this episode. So John Sopko has published an enormous amount of volume of work over the past decades, investigations and lessons learned, or lessons we should learn, as I think of them. You can get them at SIGAR.mil, S-I-G-A-R, which stands for Special Investigator General for Afghan Reconstruction. So it's SIGAR.mil, M-I-L. Or you can just listen to us talk about it, because I've read them, almost all of them. So David, what have been the results of, you know, after 20 years of war, what did we find out about gumshoeing all the mopes? So Paul, I know you've been as horrified as I and other Americans have been at this chaos in Kabul. 
as the Afghan security forces and indeed the whole government just collapsed and disappeared and the Taliban, our enemy for 20 years, simply walked in. And now they're in charge and much of the chaos indicates they're not very good at governing. Fighting, yes, but not governing. It just grieves me deeply to see them brandishing American weapons and especially driving around in our expensive up-armored Humvees. So a good amount of my shock and anger at seeing these awful scenes on TV comes from the realization that the money we spent in Afghanistan, some $2.2 trillion, has just gone, vanished. It's gone. Well, okay, maybe not quite all of it. We have spent about $300 billion on veterans care, which I do not at all count as wasted. And that cost will continue to rise and that's okay. Some of our money though ended up buying expensive villas and apartments on the Persian Gulf Coast for fat cat Afghan businessmen and corrupt government officials. But overall, our investment is just gone. It, it is shocking, isn't it? Absolutely is. And we've been so focused on this issue of getting Americans and our allies out of the country that uh, I hadn't really thought about the money. Yeah, and there'll be time to sort out the money issues. Besides, at this point, we don't actually know precisely what money went where because the taxpayer money has come through different accounts and authorities, and it's accounted for in jargon like baseline TOA and OCO money, and some of it you just stumble across. Like, for example, we had to borrow money to pay for the war. We borrowed it, and we got to pay interest. And we all know from mortgages and car loans, interest is the killer. So in this case, $500 billion just in interest. So far, it went to investors, of course, including China. That's not part of what the Pentagon counts as war costs, but we taxpayers sure do. The human cost is tragic and easier to see. Over 20 years, some 800,000 American military personnel served in Afghanistan. 2,400 were killed, over 20,000 wounded, many severely. And now, as we've seen in other kinetic wars, we failed to win. And so we're leaving because we're exhausted and we don't really care about Afghanistan anymore. And, and that makes me furious after all the sacrifice by individuals and their families, Americans and Afghans and our allies, just furious. I'm sure there's gonna be a, a ton of analysis and, and lessons learned and so forth about what went wrong in Afghanistan, but you must have thoughts about this already. Tell us, how could we get this so wrong? Paul, remind yourself to reread the best and the brightest. It's that wonderful book by David Halberstam about Vietnam, which he covered as a New York Times correspondent. And the, the book is about how the smartest guys in government, the Ivy Leaguers and the whiz kids, they all got Vietnam wrong and they kept getting it wrong. And by the way, you also ought to reread Dereliction of Duty, a book by H.R. McMaster which details the roles that the military brass and Defense Secretary Robert McNamara played in mishandling the Vietnam War and then hiding their mishandling of it, lying about it, to be blunt. So we've seen this movie before, we just forgot about it. Both of these books about Vietnam suggest, I think, that we Americans, despite the mythology about our warfighting abilities, we're just not very good at it. 
I'm not talking about the tactical military, the men and women on the ground who do the fighting. They are professionals and they work hard at it and they do well against enormous odds. While we can be sad and furious about Afghanistan, we should be proud of those who did the fighting. I'm talking about the people who make strategic decisions, who decide when to go to war and for what reason and how to do it and whether to keep going or try something different. And these people, the civilians and the military, Republicans and Democrats, just seem to get it wrong at every decision point. So, Paul, we've spent much of this podcast talking about how kinetic war doesn't work. It doesn't solve the problem you set out to solve. And that recognition seems not to have reached Washington, D.C. We seem to blunder into war, making huge misjudgments about what our kinetic force can do and how long it will take and how little it will cost. And time after time, we believe our own hype about how much better we are at kinetic force than everybody else. And then as the war goes on and on, we're not very honest to ourselves about how it's going. So if you have the time and the stomach, look up some of the Defense Department's so-called 1230 reports, 1230 reports, which are semi-annual reports on how things were going in Afghanistan over the years. So those are the so-called rosy scenarios I keep hearing about, and the Pentagon assures us that all is going well. Yeah, rosy scenario seems to pop up in all our wars. And it's sobering to go back and read them, because that's the evidence that for most of the past 20 years, politicians and generals have been, let's say, shading the truth. So in 2011, for instance, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the president's chief military advisor was Navy Admiral Mike Mullen. And he reported to Congress in 2011. I went back up to see what he was saying, and here's what he said. Quote, in Afghanistan, I believe the security situation is steadily improving. The military component of our strategy, to the extent it can be separated from the strategy as a whole, is meeting our objectives, close quote. That, that was 10 years ago, Paul. But let's get to the most basic thing that foreordained our failure in Afghanistan. If you go back to the very beginning, back in October 2001, and on and on through the years, the stated official written objective of the United States of America was to prevent Afghanistan from ever becoming a safe haven for terrorists. I kept going back to read that, ever, ever. And by the way, we included Pakistan in that official statement of strategy as well. We were going to clean terrorists out of Afghanistan. Pakistan, which was a part of the strategy we conveniently overlooked. So, Paul, if you were paying attention, and I admit I missed this at first, what with all the excitement of going to war in 2001 and exacting revenge for 9-11, but if you were paying attention back then and then over the years, you knew it was going to fail because we were not going to, we couldn't stay there forever. And the problem with such an open-ended, gigantic, broad strategy, you could fit almost anything inside it. And we did, right? No sacrifice too big, no cost too high. Build Afghanistan a new army? Sure. Transform all its governing structures and replace them with government that looks like us? No problem. Send 100,000 troops there to make it all stick? Can do build gigantic mess halls and brick dormitories for our troops and 
state-of-the-art gyms right away. And then, of course, reality started sinking in that we couldn't stay there forever. That too many Afghans would let the Taliban back if it would stop the violence. That we couldn't remake the place in our image. And that most Americans just didn't care. Wow. So it all started to basically unravel years ago. And most of us weren't really paying attention. Well, perhaps we trusted senior people too much, which is an argument for paying attention when we send young Americans to go fight someplace. But Paul, there's a related problem related to kinetic force. So the goal was to prevent Afghanistan from ever becoming a safe haven for terrorists. We wanted to do that by establishing a modern functioning state, right? As illogical as that was. You can't do that by killing people. So way back in 2007, I spoke with the Marine Colonel, William Crow, and we were in Ramadi, Iraq, where we were trying to do the same kind of thing as we were doing in Afghanistan. And he said something that stuck with me over the years. He said, if killing people would win this, we'd have won a long time ago. This is a professional war fighter saying, you can't win this war. You can't meet your strategic goal with kinetic force. Really a stunning thing from a professional warfighter. And Paul, it reminded me of a, of a conversation that took place between an American army colonel named Harry Summers and a senior North Vietnamese general. And this was after the end of the Vietnam War. Both guys had fought in that war. And at that point, the North Vietnamese had won and had taken over the whole country and the US had evacuated as many people as we could. And so Summers said to this North Vietnamese general, you know, you never really defeated us on the battlefield. The general thought and then replied, that may be so, it's also irrelevant. In other words, what he was saying was all your kinetic force didn't matter. In the last episode, we talked about how at the end of um... 20, uh, 2001, the war in Afghanistan was basically over. We, we had won. The special forces and Marines on the ground and the, the US Air Force in the air had collapsed the Taliban regime and scattered its fighters in Al Qaeda. The Taliban had officially declared its intention to disarm, uh, which was an offer that was spurned by the United States. And that was 20 years ago. Yeah, those were heady days. We just overthrown the Taliban and scattered Al Qaeda. Osama bin Laden, who planned the 9-11 attacks, he fled for his life and was in hiding somewhere. We owned Afghanistan, which in those days sounded like a triumph, right? Revenge for 9-11. It seemed like kinetic force worked after all. And actually it did for a very, very short time, and then it started to go bad. But can we draw draw even some general lessons from the, the past 20 years. I mean, we, we've got to have learned something from this debacle. Um, otherwise, we'll, we'll just go do it again somewhere else 50 years from now. Well, sure, that's the worry, isn't it? And look, there's lots and lots of reasons for our debacle in Afghanistan, to use your word. And people will be analyzing and debating and writing about this for decades. And certainly people a lot smarter than me will be able to see things that we did wrong and we should avoid doing in the future. But, but let's pick out a few obvious ones. One is know what you're getting into. So we knew very little. We, we actually knew almost nothing about Afghanistan in 2001. 
about its complex tribal and clan power structures, its tradition of local rule, its intense hostility to outside invaders. And one of the things that John Sopko, who is the Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction, one of the very valuable things he did was to interview and record senior US officials talking about what went wrong. And this was highly secret, it's leaked out, but secret at the time. One of the people he talked to was Lieutenant General Douglas Lute, who oversaw Afghan policy from the White House. So in a recorded interview, he said, quote, we were devoid of a fundamental understanding of Afghanistan. We didn't know what we were doing, close quote. Which for the guy who was running Afghanistan at the most senior level, <laughs> that's pretty unsettling. Here's one small example that I came across in 2010 when I spent some time with American trainers working with Afghan army recruits. And this was at the big training facility just on the outskirts of Kabul. And one of the trainers was complaining about how they just couldn't get these recruits to shoot straight, which is sort of a basic military skill, right? No, out on the rifle range, shots were just going everywhere except at the target. And year after year after year of expensive training all for nothing. And they finally figured out that because of malnutrition, Afghans have bad eyesight. They, they couldn't see the targets. So out went orders for tens of thousands of eyeglasses. So here's another, another thing we ought to think about. Think before you leap. Back in early 2002, I was chatting with an army MP, a military police captain. And this guy was in charge of the prison at Bagram Air Base, mostly Al-Qaeda guys, sworn enemies in the US. And I said, what's gonna happen to these guys? Because you can't ever let them go, ever, because they'll just come back at us. And this officer said, we have no idea. I guess we'll just have to keep them locked up forever. That was pretty odd that we hadn't thought of that before we went in there, but even odder, an astonishing exchange took place seven years later, so 2009 even after many prisoners had been shipped off to CIA black sites and the prison at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. So this is from a congressional hearing. Senator Lindsey Graham, a Republican from South Carolina, was questioning David Petraeus, the general who was then commanding US Central Command and overseeing all military operations in the Middle East. Senator Graham said, General Petraeus, we have foreign fighters in detention now in Afghanistan. Is that correct, General Petraeus? It is. Senator Graham, what are we going to do with all these people? General, I'm sorry, General Petraeus, I'm not sure about that right now. I, gods, this was eight years, in, nine years into the wars, and the guy in charge says, we have no idea what we're going to do with these people. Oh. Okay, so another thing we ought to learn, define your goals precisely. So the official strategy in Afghanistan, as we've talked about, was so broad and general, as well as being ridiculous, that it became difficult to figure out if progress was being made or not. So way back in 2009, for example, a senior Pentagon strategist, Michelle Flournoy, who was summoned to Congress to explain how things were going in Afghanistan, 
And let me read from the official transcript and I'll, I'll try not to laugh. Senator Susan Collins, a Republican of Maine asks the obvious question, how will we know if we're winning? Here's what Secretary Flournoy had to say, quote, I think on the Afghan side, there are a whole host, but much more developed set of inherited metrics given that we've been conducting these operations for a long time. What we're trying to do is sort through those more carefully. Some of them are more input related. And what we're really trying to focus on is outcomes and actual impacts. So we aren't starting with a blank sheet, but we are in the process of refining the metrics that have been used in Afghanistan, blah, 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 on and on and on and on. So because no one could detail precisely what the strategy was, it became easy for the Pentagon to skate by with those over-optimistic assessments of how well things were going, which we've already talked about. So here's another one. Be humble about your ability to understand what needs fixing and your ability to fix it. Because of the lack of security, I mean, there was fighting going on all over the country. It made it possible to do the kind of work that we needed to be done, which was to build Afghanistan's infrastructure, right? There weren't enough civilians around to plan and oversee development work. So I'm talking about, for instance, our ability to recruit bright young Afghan men and women serving local government and supporting them and paying their salaries and mentoring them and keeping in touch with them. Those were things that needed to be done to help them build their government. There were a lot of brave civilian Americans who did volunteer to work in Afghanistan, but by and large, the development work fell to the military. And that meant that American troops were thrown into the development business. And they're not only big hearted, they're smart and obviously they wanna do the right thing. So the military, the people are not the villains here. The problem is that the dynamics of kinetic warfare prevent, really crowd out any efforts to actually fix the original problem that got us involved there in the first place. In Afghanistan, as in Somalia and so many other places, the actual very, very basic problem is lack of opportunity, right? Lack of good schools, lack of jobs, lack of decent housing and sanitation, lack of ability to participate in government. You can't find a job, you turn to crime. For a kid growing up in Kandahar or Mazari Sharif or Kabul, joining a militia was an opportunity for power, adventure, camaraderie. So Afghanistan became a petri dish for fundamentalist Islamic terrorism. So we sent some of our most powerful kinetic tools, the soldiers of the 10th Mountain and 101st Airborne Division to tackle the problem, right? Smart, good people trained to kill and we sent them to go fix Afghanistan. And how does that get at the problem of lack of opportunity? Another lesson we should learn, and I'll make this short, we ought to have a realistic expectation about how fast we can get things done in a war zone while we're fighting. As we've already mentioned, we didn't do this. And the result was we shoveled in too much money too fast, turbocharging the corruption that already existed in Afghanistan. Here's one example I ran into in Eastern Afghanistan. The US was financing the construction of a road through the mountains. As I recall, it went from coast to Jalalabad, and it was a critical road through the mountains. And the construction crews kept getting hit by these Taliban. And um, it made it kind of hard to work because they were trying to protect them all the time. And there was a lot of fighting going on. And 
But eventually, guys from one of the Taliban militias showed up and they said, hey, oh, look, we could protect you. So they were hired as security guards. And of course, they were the ones who were doing the attacks. And everybody knew this. People just looked the other way in order to get the damn road built. And it was like, you know, it was like being held up by the mob. So American taxpayers' dollars were going to people who were killing Americans. It's mind blowing. So one last thing, another lesson we should learn. We had the wrong people, civilians now I'm talking about, in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I wanna read you from John Sopko's most recent lessons learned report, which just came out a few weeks ago. U.S. government's inability to get the right people into the right jobs at the right times was one of the most significant failures of the mission. It's also one of the hardest to repair. U.S. personnel in Afghanistan were often unqualified and poorly trained, and those who were qualified were difficult to retain. Defense Department police advisors, so these were the people we hired to help train Afghan police, right? They watched American TV shows to learn about policing. Civil affairs teams were mass produced via PowerPoint presentations and every agency experienced annual lobotomies as staff constantly rotated out, leaving their successors to start from scratch and make similar mistakes all over again. Close quote. So that's from John Sapko's most recent report. And the way John sums it up, in a direct conversation with me. He said, we spent too much money, too fast, with too little oversight in too small a country and nobody was held accountable. And Paul, the tragedy of course, is that the Afghan people are good folks judging by those I met and they deserve better and so do we. Kinetic War, as seen by war correspondent and journalist David Wood, is a Breaking the Gray production, created by Paul Wood and Russ Eisenman. Chris Craig is sound designer. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.